welcome to Cruise Club. We've got the Need the Need to Podcast. This is episode 20, whew, 20, Eyes Wide Shut from 1999. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. Fidelio, everybody. It took, <laughs> getting in the door early with that. We, it took 1,200 episodes or something, but we are finally covering a Stanley Kubrick movie. I don't know that we've covered a Stanley Kubrick movie <laughs> on any podcast. And it turns out to be his last movie. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's a reverse cinemaker. Ooh. We have with us tonight, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to introduce the voice you just heard second. I'm going to introduce first the former co-host of Monkey Club, Legendary. a podcast that in theory could have covered a Stanley Kubrick movie, 2001 A Space Odyssey. True. Chose not to. I don't know why. Uh, maybe it was the fact that they ended after two and a half months. I don't know. But I'm going to ask the question right now. With us tonight, Chris Podcast. Chris, why did you not cover a Stanley Kubrick movie on your podcast? That's a good question. I think we couldn't really find time for it in between episodes about skateboarding chimps. So <laughs> It'd be really funny if you covered only the first like 45 minutes of that movie, and then it gets to space, you're like, I'm good, no more monkeys. <laughs> you were also, this is your inaugural Cruise Club. You were on our Mazes and Monsters episode on the other Tom Tom Club, so if you want more of Chris' podcast, you can yeah. check out Mazes and Monsters. Yeah, the magic we'll of run Pardew. Of the memories. Pardew, seriously. Also joining us tonight, he is making his third appearance on the Cruise Club podcast. You heard his voice a couple times already tonight. He is the co-host of the Contenders podcast. Oh, also, Chris is the co-host of Now and Again, the more important one, the one that's still currently going. <laughs> Monkey Club in our hearts forever. It's weird but I didn't now and again, remember that. But Now and Again still exists. Uh, with us tonight, the co-host of the Contenders podcast, Mr. Tobin Addington. Hello, Tobin. Hello. Thank you both for joining us tonight. And I'm going to say right up top, this is the kind of movie where I'm like, oh, I should be watching way more good movies than I am. Like, why do I choose to watch so many bad movies when there's a movie like this that I could just be like, yes, let me sit down and enjoy this. I'm going to throw out the word masterpiece. I know that Mike had a difficult time Whoa. with that. I don't want to blow up his spot. Yeah, masterpiece. It is kind of funny, Wonderful. though. You, you watch a movie like this and you're like, oh, right, like, Sidney Lament has, like, a whole bunch of movies out there. You know, like, Bogdanovich made some great... Like, it reminds you <laughs> of, like, why... Yeah, you don't just have... To, I don't just need to be watching fun schlock like there's actually great movies out there. <laughs> thank you for cruise club extending the cinematic reaches of our depths or i don't know how to say this to both this and then magnolia the movie we're going to do next episode oh yeah. with someone who's here tonight another very long very good movie from an auteur who apparently showed up on set and offered tom cruise's role in magnolia just by visiting the set here this movie that took 400 days to shoot <laughs> Whoa. Yes. a story that takes place over 36 hours maybe if that this is it's bananas how long i mean worth it but bananas so you've both been on cruise club and hank's memories episodes before so you know sort of how this goes i don't even know where to begin with this so tobin why don't you kick things off what is your favorite part oh actually hold on sorry i think i forgot intentionally mike because it, it's the pressure of describing a two hour and 40 minute movie oh but the plot uh, summary yeah i'm doing we're doing a plot summary now because past guest and chris's former co-host christian larson said you know not everybody has seen every movie mm -hmm. uh you probably should do a plot summary and i'm like yeah you know that kind of makes sense and if, if, if i miss anything which i'm going to do let me know although not much not a lot not much going on no, so, yeah yeah you know there's a lot that happens and not a lot happens so Tom Cruise plays Dr. Bill, Dr. Bill Harford. He's married to Nicole Kidman. This is their third movie together. Far and Away, dropping the hammer, Mike. I'm going to drop the hammer. Uh, or that was, uh, Days of Thunder, I mean. Days and then Far and Away. I'm going to ask and if then... you like my new hat. 
How do you like my yes. hat? <laughs> Eyes wide shut. This is three movies, three three word titles, nine words in these Nicole Kidman Cruz pair ups. So that's something of note. <laughs> they are married. They are both beautiful people. Obviously, they go to a party and they both are in sort of sexually provocative instances or occurrences or they have the ability to have sex with other people and neither does and they go back and they have they get high at their apartment and they have a nine-year-old daughter who's asleep in bed or seven-year-old daughter who's asleep in bed and they get high and they get into an argument and nicole kibben's basically like i had a fantasy about having sex with another man and i would have left you for him if he was still there if i woke up the next morning like it was real i would have left you for him and tom cruise says i don't know what's going on I don't like this. He gets a phone call. He is, since he is a doctor, one of his patients has just died. He goes to the patient's apartment. Uh, the woman who is his daughter, the patient's daughter, kisses Tom Cruise, says, I'm in love with you. He says, I don't think you're right. On the way home, has a run-in with a prostitute, brings him into her apartment. We later find out that she is HIV positive. She does not know at that point, but he sort of dodges a bullet there. He's sort of in the mood for something risky. He then Wait, meets up with Wait, does he his... want some risky business? Sorry. He does want some risky business. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, he meets up with a former med school colleague of his, and I also do want to mention that Dr. Chris Podcast is in, in the works of becoming a doctor, so I'm interested to hear your med school opinions on all of this. This movie was the inspiration for going to medical school, actually. I, oh. I would imagine so. I mean, this is quite the lifestyle. Uh, so he meets up with Nick Nightingale, who is now a nighttime jazz club pianist, pries out of him that Nick is going to go play piano at this like super secret, ever-moving party, and no one exactly knows, you know, what it is, but it sounds something that Cruz is not invited to. So he secures a costume, goes there, very quickly fi- is found out that he does not belong there. It's an orgy. It feels like billionaires having billionaire fun, which is sort of the same thing as the party in the beginning. Cruz gets kicked out, almost gets murdered or sacrificed. I don't know what they were going to do, but things, almost things, bad things happen. They kick him out. He tries to figure out what happened. He learns that his friend who threw the party in the beginning has been following him. He is at that party. They basically say, you don't belong here. Go back to your life. He goes back to Nicole Kidman at the end. Things are tense because they've, been fighting, and this is, again, a very compact timeline, the last word ever said in a Stanley Kubrick movie, what should we do now, is fuck. So, it's a story about a relationship, strong, but sort of falls apart. Like, that's also wildly overcomplicated and also wildly under... Like, I don't I don't know... <laughs> I feel like that was a terrible description and also, like, a good description, and I don't know. Tobin, if you had to pick a favorite part of this nearly three-hour movie, what is your favorite part, your favorite element, your favorite scene of Eyes Wide Shut? My favorite part of this movie is Nicole Kidman's the big monologue, sort of central monologue that starts mm. the whole thing where she... It's after the party, right? They're, they're smoking... Or maybe it's another night. No, it's after the party? I can't remember. I there's think no, it's after the party. I think it's that same night. They're smoking pot, they're getting high, and then they end up with this... They have this argument. She then... Uh, sort of interrogates him about whether or not he wanted to sleep with these other women and if he can admit it and all this kind of stuff. And then she sits down and and the camera changes to like this profile and she goes into this monologue that I think she just slays. I think she is so good in that scene. That's my favorite part of this movie. There's so many things that that like three-sentence description of that scene makes me want to talk about. <laughs> I just talked for a while, so I'm going to pump the brakes for a second. Do either of you want to respond to that before I... Because I just have trivia floating in my head. I've got thoughts. <laughs> like, I just... I yeah. literally finished this two minutes before we started recording. It's as <laughs> it's fresh, fresh as possibly yeah. be wow. in fresh. my head. Timing was tight, but I got it done. But Mike or Chris, any thoughts on Tobin's favorite scene? Because, I mean, this whole movie is, in my mind, incredible, but that is 
Whew, that is a performance. Uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a doozy. I almost decided to get Nicole Kidman high to record this, but I held off on it. It, uh, it seems like she had some really good shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I really like the dynamic between Hanks and uh, nope. Hanks. Here I go. Uh, oh boy. I like the dynamic <laughs> between Cruz and Kidman. I don't know if it has anything to do with them being an actual married couple. I think they're both really great in this movie, actually. And, you know, it's not that I don't like this movie, Joey. I just had a difficult time watching it this go around and everything oh i understand i'm I'm not trying to put you on blast i've got nothing but love for kubrick one of this movie's problems is the sort of depiction of marijuana use uh i don't want to go on like a diatribe oh no rant or anything is this a waking up in reno situation no no not at all but i just want to say like it just feels like i I, it just doesn't feel like natural in all that sense like i don't feel i feel like they could have just been drunk or they wouldn't even have needed the the weed or whatever and like they could have just the tension was there for me already you know what i'm saying like Mm -hmm. in in like one scene just when they're at that party and they get separated and then they're going off on their flirtations and stuff and you're like oh dear like they're both gonna like do something here and they don't like it just feels like there's a lot of when they get together that there's a lot of stress or something so like i don't want to take anything away from her performance at all because i don't think that it really factors in too much. I think it's just a visual cue to get to say like, oh, they're in an altered state. Like they're in Mm -hmm. a different state of mind right now. So whether or not you're with us or not, like now you are. Now you know like they're high, but they've been sort of like mentally off already or something. I mean, that's why I'm reading it. Is this the monologue you're referring to? Is this, uh, does this end with her saying, uh, while I was with him, you were dearer to me than ever before, and like my love for you was tender and sad. No, that's the second okay. one. I think when he's come home, she's had the she's had a dream. Yes. then I think that's the post okay. dream one. This is the one where she st- she goes from the thing with like her titties. She has the titties mm. line, which is so funny, <laughs> and but then sits down and like describes meeting the sailor or the you know not meeting but like seeing the naval officer for the first time, and and she she talks about him the naval officer in this memory of hers getting a like a message that night at dinner the next table over and leaving and then that's never come back to which leaves the op- the, the possible opening that she did have an affair with him that she just never got a chance to say because the monologue gets sort of interrupted by the phone call that this guy has died this patient of cruises so it's left ambiguous that way um, that other monologue yeah. is really good too but this this one I think you have to believe this moment from her for the rest of the movie to make any sense at all and the degree to the degree that degree that it does, I think it's because she performs. Yeah, I mean so that's well. two different Nicole Kidman monologues we we've each pointed out as like fantastic. So she's not in this movie as much as for for as much as they were like it's Tom mm-hmm. Cruise and Nicole Kidman they're married they're in a movie together where they fuck she's like not really in it but when she is she kills it <laughs> yeah I was almost wondering if she was in like somewhere hidden in the uh, orgy scene somewhere like just standing around you know like even in oh, mask yeah. and hood or something if they just put her you know to other use because she was there for so long but not in much of the movie <laughs> here's trivia about the orgy scene that just came out this year which I think is phenomenal oh yes that Sorry, the mysterious going. voice uh, of the woman so we find out that it's Mandy so the woman who had almost or I don't know I guess it's I guess it's still an overdose like she she gets fucked up on heroin and cocaine at the party in the beginning tom cruise goes and attends to her takes care of her sort of nurses her back to health a little bit and just says you know you need to go to rehab we later find out through Sidney pollock at the end 
that woman is at the party. She's the one says to Tom Cruise, you have to get out of here. You know, she's in the mask, but she, you, you sort of see, because you see her naked at the beginning, you see her naked at the end, they, whatever. He identifies her after she dies in the newspaper. He goes to the morgue, and he finds out from Sidney Pollack that that was all the same woman all along. News broke this year that apparently the woman who did her voice, because that woman could not really break her British accent, uh, the woman who dubbed her voice, the voice we hear in the movie, is Kate Blanchett. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Yeah. Which is weird and cool. And even though she's British, uh, she's able to pull off the, you know, the American accent. So. Australia. This whole movie was also filmed in England because uh, Stanley Kubrick would not leave. He, he, I think he hated yeah. to fly. Yeah. He um, so mm-hmm. this was all filmed in England for a very New York movie. Uh, this is all in England. <laughs> and he's a super New York guy, if you've ever heard him talk before and stuff. Like, <laughs> yeah. for, he's from the Bronx, I think. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Even if he was raised, like, pretty wealthy. Like, it's, he's, I think of New York when I think of Stanley Kubrick so hard. And to feel like, to know that, like, he spent most of his life living in the country, in the country of Great Britain, like, over in London, England and stuff. Like, it, it just baffles me sometimes. But that's, yeah, that was just his eccentricity. So I think what works, going back to Tobin's favorite part, I think what works so well about the Cruz and Kidman dynamic, and I think what works so well about just her performance in this, is what you sort of pointed out, Mike, that it is the fact that they are a married couple. Like, at one point, Stanley Kubrick wanted this to be Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger. Ooh. So, like, I think he had the idea that he wanted a real married couple to be in the movie together. Because they're, they're married, or they were married, yes. right? Yeah, right. <laughs> And so I think that there's that that tension there that you're bringing more to the movie than just meeting an actress or meeting an actor for the first time. There's a shared history, and you're able to bring that for better or worse into the movie. Within a few years, I think, of this movie coming out, they would get divorced, and then he would go on with, uh, with oh God, what's her name, Katie Holmes? And then, you know, from there, who knows? Yeah, I think there's the, the reason it feels so raw and so real is because it is real. And also, apparently, Stanley Kubrick refused to let them share. Like, he would give each of them notes and tell them that they could not tell the other person what he told them. And so there's that scene where Tom Cruise is imagining Nicole Kidman and that sailor, that Navy man, having sex. And like, there's like that sort of choppy, really lit in blue dream sequence that was you know a minute in the movie and they shot that for a week and they had her they did like 50 erotic poses together and tom cruise was not allowed on set so like and she couldn't tell him what they were doing can you imagine you know you love your wife you trust your wife but she's away for a week you know that she's filming a sex scene with a hot naked model what is happening and you're not allowed to talk about it like you want to talk about it and she's like i can't for art for a movie like that is crazy i mean that's that's directing i guess it's i mean that's how that's a method you know what i'm saying that's not I mean he he was is known or was known to do all types of crazy things to his actors and actresses and and people really got like just taking it too far you know what I'm saying like some people would say mm-hmm. taking it too far but you know they all were like well we'll do anything for Stanley and you suffer for your art you know and it's it's got to be worth it if you're in a, you know there's a finite number of those movies and they're all exceptional so you get to be in one or two of those it's like a super elite status kind of thing so i yeah it's i'm not kind of condoning that kind of directorial behavior or anything you know you hear sometimes where guys take like you know david fincher and his 70 takes stories and things like that or whatever you know you hear stories and stuff but like that's yeah that's just that's well the extreme. billiards the billiard scene at the end here took 200 takes yikes <laughs> yeah, you know, apparently I th- I don't know if Sidney Pollack. I think he was sort of. They said he was over prepared. Maybe he was nervous. I don't know, it's a lo- it's a big scene. It's a long scene. It's an important scene. And it's a reshoot and a reshoot. Yeah. Two hundred right. takes. Right. Two hundred takes. Well, and part part of that is in Kubrick's defense. 
not that he needs my, my defense, but that he's, as with Fincher, you hear actors talking about the number of takes they do, and especially someone like Sidney Pollack, who is such a trained actor. Sandy Meisner uh, was a teacher of his, and he was a you know an actor before he was a filmmaker, and now coming back to, to acting here again. But he he has so he comes very as you say prepared and trained. And Kubrick doesn't want that. He wants to break the, your habits, right? So part of that is when when Fincher talks about it, and I think it was the same for Kubrick. It's you do seventy takes to wear them out, so they stop acting, and they're just too tired to act anymore. And then they just are in the scene, and then then they sort of they're able to capture something in that. And I, I think that's probably the kinds of the kind of thing that was being done. Doesn't mean it was fun to do necessarily, <laughs> but it does make sense to me as a way to sort of sure. get to a, get get a performance like this. And I think you see that when Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise are in that fight, and it just feels like the kind of fight or like a similar fight that they've had, not mm. about the fantasy, but just that kind of fight. And you can just see the exasperation on Tom Cruise's face, just like I don't know how to respond to this. Like I want to respond, but I <laughs> yeah. don't know how. Yeah. And it's yeah. it's true the character, but also probably like. I can't believe I'm doing this for another fucking time. Like, what is going... Like, Stanley, stop it. <laughs> what I do you want from me? Yeah. I cannot. One more little bit of trivia is that Nicole Kidman apparently always wanted to do this movie. Tom Cruise makes sense, like, hated doing this, but knew that if he ever backed out of this, he would kick himself forever. Like, he wanted to do it, but he kind of hated doing it just because of the sheer amount of work that it was. But you know, I can sort of see in between that in-between zone. It's... And it's a lot. Chris, what about you? Is the, what, are you what is your favorite part, your favorite moment, your favorite scene... Uh, if somebody says, what's your favorite part of Eyes Wide Shut? What do you tell them? When uh, assholes go, uh, my favorite Christmas movie is Die Hard. I can smugly go, my favorite Christmas movie is Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, but, <laughs> but actually, it's um, this whole movie kind of baffles me. Like it's, a, it's got a pretty clear plot. It's got a pretty clear theme, I think. There's just something to this movie that still baffles me. Like, I feel like I'm missing something of what Kubrick is saying. I don't know. It's it's a movie that every time I watch it, I feel I feel like I'm 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 missing chunks of it. Like stuff has been cut out, and it's it's there's something blank in my mind to me, and I love that feeling. Um, it frustrates me every time, but I, I love that. But my favorite scene, if you want my individual favorite scene, it is that billiard scene. Um, and it's not surprising that a it was a reshoot, b it was a million takes because Cruz does an amazing job, maybe not much of an acting job, of uh, looking and just feeling and emoting, being extremely defeated and overwhelmed <laughs> and um that that is actually a scarier scene to me than the uh the unmasking at the orgy personally i, I just find that scene so well done and oppressive i actually found the second half of this movie to like be kind of like a horror movie uh this time around and I, and I usually kind of check out after the first half of this movie after like the whole orgy thing but then this time i was like wait a minute like i'm really getting more into this side of it and Cruise being it's almost more like a Hitchcock thing like the second half or something and I'm, hmm. like this is really cool where they're taking it I was just getting major David Lynch vibes like the entire time just like the like things feel a little bit off and I think it's yes. mm -hmm. I don't know if it's this if, if it's the the specific filmmaking techniques that Kubrick is using here or just like the ability to create a mood and an atmosphere but like things just feel off like you, you you're unsettled by everything everybody's so close to each other and the way that they're mm. talking to each other like doesn't feel real but it feels real and the soundtrack the score is creepy and the music in like the diegetic and non-diegetic like all of it is creepy like everything about this just makes you like like makes my skin crawl yeah and i love it there's almost like a dreamlike quality to some of this film where it's like that kind of state 
you know, almost like Lynch light, I would say, or something. And, you know, I think part of that is because, you know, the dream of hers or like that becomes sort of the thing about like the sailor, I think that weighs on his mind and it goes from like, it turns sort of like into a nightmare, you know what I'm saying? And I don't know if everything that happens is actually happening the way it's happening or if it's Mm -hmm. inflated through his mind and his state of being at the time and, you know, all of his anxieties that are just like, manifesting and stuff so like yeah i'm with you guys on that especially uh, chris i get that whole sort of like i'm not quite sure if i got a handle on what's going on but i like it it's like keeping me on an edge or something and mentioning sailors my favorite sailor is sailor ripley there's another david lynch right there <laughs> well i in regards to this being a, a dream logic movie i completely agree and it as much as i love lynch uh, this might be my favorite movie that you can call quote unquote dream logic uh when i hear that when people throw that around and you know, film forums, internet, stuff like that. Um, the two people that are mostly connected with Dream Logic to me are David Lynch and Dario Argento. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like Argento's is, I've always kind of been of the weird um, outlier opinion where I think those movies are just shittily made and you slap a pink gel on a movie that sucks and all of a sudden <laughs> it's dreamlike. No, thank you. But this is the most Dream Logic movie that still has like a logical through line and it's linear. There's no dwarfs talking backwards, you know? It, it makes sense. The dream logic infects the real world versus the other way around. And I love that. And it does feel insanely creepy. And it's like cruises in like this weird simulacrum of reality. And I, I love it. I love it. It does, like I said before, the movie <laughs> the movie baffles me in a lot of ways. but And that's part of it. But I, I adore just how off this entire movie feels. So a lot of people refer to this as his, as Kubrick's unfinished masterpiece, because he died, he, he finished the cut, like he put together the movie that he wanted to make, and he turns it in, and then four days later he died. And so the movie wasn't done done, like the score wasn't done, and other elements weren't done, but the movie, like the version, the cuts, the editing, all of that, I think, as far as I know, what we're seeing is what he put together. It's just that there was more work to be done after that. Um, so it's, it's sort of unfinished in that sense, but it's also kind of the finished thing. Um, but I think there's a frustration from people, Chris, in terms of that feeling that you have that people want more. They want more answers, which, you know, whether or not this was exactly what he wanted to do or not, which it seems like it is, I think people want to sort of be, have their hand held and walk through, like, what does this all mean? There's one piece that I have not read yet that I'm going to link link on the show page on cageclub.me. It's called Introducing Sociology, a, a Review of Eyes Wide Shut by Tim Kreider. And apparently, like, this is a very, very long thing, but I've heard nothing but amazing things from this. And I did not read this intentionally, because I didn't want to just be quoting from this all night. And it's, it's bad enough that I'm quoting from IMDb Trivia all night. <laughs> but there's going to be this, like, very in-depth thing, offers more insight and workings and knowledge and how it all happens uh, that I'm going to link on cageclub.me. So if you want to read more about this, if after, or you know, pause the podcast and go listen to it, go, go read this thing. But again, there's so much out there that's been written about this movie. It deserves it because you're right. Like it, it's, it tells a confusing story in a way that makes sense, but also frustrates you, but like in a good way. Yeah. And like, it's, it's crazy that Kubrick made this movie I mean maybe it's not so nuts looking back and seeing like Lolita and stuff like that but that he would make a masterpiece about like marriage and fidelity and things like that like something that nowadays that kind of stuff is like rom-com or melodrama kind of stuff I feel not that that's bad or anything but just Kubrick would sort of say like no like there's another way there's more sort of like artistic or sort of other way to look and approach like a marriage kind of thing and I don't know that's the thing this time around I think that I was struggling with maybe it's because like I've, I'm older now and like I haven't seen this movie and 
in almost five or six years or something like that. But like the different themes are popping up for me now that I'm older. And maybe that's what's making me sort of uncomfortable and having me Mm -hmm. have to like pause this and stop this a few more times. Because like just in that regard, uh, I'm sort of like closer to the issues. Like they're a little more (laughs) relatable. And I don't know that I like that necessarily. It's just (laughs) making me feel my own age. And so like it's interesting how like it's just reflecting. I'm finding reflections through this piece of art and you know every time i watch it like something else is popping up so yeah i you know i have to echo that i so the first time i saw this movie was in the theater the i went opening night i was it was my first time seeing a kubrick movie in the theater and Same I, here. At, at that point i knew what kubrick was real quick question chronologically what was the movie that he put out before this uh full, metal, full jacket. metal jacket yeah it was which is that like what's that like 87 87 87 i believe or five i think so it's it had been a while it'd been, it a, had while. been a long time a long time okay okay so my mom and i went together to oh, no. on opening night <laughs> <laughs> which is not as maybe as unusual as it i mean my mom and i went to my mom and my grandmother and i went to american pie 2 in the theater on opening oh, night dear. together so yeah what if whatever reason it wasn't a, and i don't remember it being like this oh my god i'm watching this movie with my mom like it was just oh my god she wants to go to like a kubrick movie this is not great let's go to a kubrick movie together i, I do always flash to that as we as, as the movie because it's a movie in spools you kind of go okay this is yeah pro- may, i probably was a little more uncomfortable than i remember i have wrestled with this movie every time i've seen it maybe half a dozen times now and i kind of wrestle with it every time and i i enjoyed it the least watching it this time and I think the part of the reason gets to something that Mike was talking about, which is that the whole movie is just is basically driven by how fragile Tom Cruise's ego is. Mm. That he can he cannot accept that his wife wanted to have sex with someone else, and it sends him into this like mind blowing tailspin. Yeah. And it's like seriously, dude, like get over yourself. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, and that the frustration I have with him and that, and the character, it was a bit of a barrier to me now in terms of enjoying the movie. Cause I, cause it's hard for me to be on any kind of journey with him. Cause I'm, because I'm frustrated with him and I think it's and I think maybe I'm, I watch it maybe a little bit with my contenders glasses on and so I'm I'm sort of seeing it in this in a new way but that did that did bother me this time I think there's something interesting I mean I think that's the point of the movie maybe is that he's acting out what Nicole Kidman just is like essentially too faithful to actually like follow through on like she has these fantasies but he's actually trying to go live them like he's just like well she thought about cheating I'm gonna go actually cheat and I think it's fascinating to watch this movie from that perspective that you're not rooting for him but you're like i can't believe like the double standard like you're he's he's the hero like he's the one you're following he's the one you're supposed to be like in the mind of but you're right like it's it's fascinating to watch i think him go through and not realize that what he's doing is just what he's accusing his wife of how dare she even think of it yeah yeah he's completely oblivious like everybody in this movie man and woman are basically like throwing themselves at him yeah and he everyone can't tell. Him. yeah and yeah, he yeah. can't tell like he is just like on his own cloud yeah it, it gets to me too but i almost wonder if that's sort of like the magic of this movie is like not only is that supposed to but like you get to a certain part of your life where you realize oh wait like he's not a hero or whatever like he's not the protagonist i thought he was like and the movie just becomes like a whole other movie like still really enjoyable and stuff but I think like maybe more difficult uh, and not like in a bad way, but it's good when it's rechallenges you and like very few movies like can do that when you rewatch them. Because I wonder if you could watch this through like the, and especially now, you know, Tobin, with your, with your contenders glasses. And I do want to say that I like how you and your sister both have 
uh, going to a cruise movie with your mom sort of at an inappropriate time, <laughs> her seeing Cocktail at like three years old or whatever, yeah. being buried under a blanket during, totally. you know, waterfall sex scenes or whatever. But I wonder if, if you can read this movie, and I'm sure you can, through the eyes of like the oblivious white male privilege. Like he, yeah. there's no reason for him to be able to be at that party other than I want to be there. Like you're not invited. You don't know anything about it. Like, there's, he's like, how did you, how did you know? How did you find out? He's like, well, there, there, you left all these breadcrumbs. I mean, you showed up in a taxi. We, we found the rental slip. Like, what did you, like, you're not even good at this. <laughs> I think there's probably an ironic reading of his character that he feels like he is, you know, impervious to bullets, but he's just a dumb dumb. Like, he's a, he's a smart guy. He's a doctor. He's great at his job, but he's emotionally dumb, not good at things. Socially, like, inept, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can't pick up on, like, all these cues and stuff. And it's just crazy, like, because you look at his life and you're like, wow, he's, like, super rich and has it all and all this. And then you look at, like, Sidney Pollock's, like, one room at the end of the movie with the billiard thing. It's, like, the size of his apartment. You're like, oh, right, that's, like, a whole other level of fuck you money that they're dealing with at that orgy level. Like, he, yeah, he wants, it's crazy because it's, like, even in that status level, there's still, like, it's not enough for him, you know what I'm saying? He's got it all, but, like, he still needs more than all. So I think one of the themes of this movie is the fantasy versus the reality. And I'm not talking about life. I'm talking, I guess, about the idea of infidelity, the fantasy versus the reality of it. And I think it's important. I, I'm going to disagree that Tom Cruise's character is socially inept. I think at the beginning with the two women, you see that he is actually very charming and he is quite good at this and he's very socially mm-hmm. adept actually but the whole thing he's he's experiencing the reality of the fantasy and it is a fucking nightmare like literally and figuratively like he has to be torn down throughout all of it i think by the end he is at that level as the the billiards guy says like you've been way over your head the last 24 hours you can kind of see this deconstruction of the masculine like I- ideal of the, of what he's trying to do which is like uh, Nicole Kidman says, like, men will stick it at anything, and women just have to do it for security. And it's, it's kind of tearing all that down to me. So I think that's kind of where I agree and disagree with what was kind of thrown about there. I think wh- whether you read the movie in the one way or the other, like, whether he is socially competent and aware of himself and, you know, just struggling to get by, or whether he's just a complete, you know, not airheaded buffoon, but just in over his head, I think that one thing kind of rings true is that, like, he's he's selling it like he's able to perform this role tom cruise is the actor is able to perform this role in a way that just leaves it open to interpretation which i think is just fascinating uh, i mean maybe it's because we're going down this road together joey but like he's just freaking jumping off of the screen <laughs> like everything like all of, like when he's like really close in the prostitute's apartment and just like starts like laughing it's like all the little cruise mannerisms are like on full display here somehow there's like you know i i just see him not reaching but he's like pulling out like all of the stops here and i'm loving his performance is this the least tom cruise movie he's playing a character so not in his type you know he's not sprinting at the camera he's not getting into gunfights and stuff there's multiple scenes where he or uh, kubrick forces the the women are taller than him which is something that i know he he doesn't mm-hmm. quite let happen in a lot of movies he has more control over um is this the least cruise movie possibly possibly you know i can't believe he didn't run in this movie at all i know quite he honestly have run. I mean, he, it's he insane. wanted to run right yeah <laughs> He's, like, you know, mentally running. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. Like, you know, I think we've talked a little earlier about how Cruz has always been just uh, edge, edged out Hanks early on with, like, the dramatic stuff. You know, he could do Rain Man. You know, there's parts of Cocktail that I think he's pulling off, you know. We just haven't seen that off, like, in a couple movies. Like, he hasn't really reached into the dramatic 
bag where he can like slow down and take his time with a roll. So maybe he's just like kind of relishing in the moment here with this roll. And next one with Magnolia, like he just gets on like a roll, no pun intended. I just can't think of another word for it, but like just gets kind of into it. Right. And like does a couple more of these kinds of things before getting back to like blowing stuff up. I think what we've seen, and I think that to sort of take what Mike said and go back in time a little bit, the movie did immediately before this is Jerry Maguire. Up to that point, we really hadn't seen, aside from Far and Away, the second movie he did with Nicole Kidman, we hadn't really seen romantic crews. Like he had relationships in movies, you know, like him and Kelly McGillis in Top Gun, but him as like a romantic lead hadn't really been done. It was just the one time in Far and Away he chose to act like he basically had them hire Nicole Kidman and they were like, I think they had just gotten married. It was like, it's not really acting. I mean, it's acting, but it's a different kind of acting like when you're like, I want to be comfortable. Like, my love interest is my wife. Between Jerry Maguire and this movie and then Magnolia, what we're going to get to next, I think he's consciously, intentionally trying to go against type. I think like like what Mike was saying and just see if he can stretch himself out. And I think this is probably the biggest example so far of not what he is, because he is, like, on the outside, he is still that cocky, handsome, you know, he can do anything, he's king of the world. But he shows a vulnerability in this movie that we haven't really seen a lot of. You know, he has to learn a lesson in Top Gun, like his friend dies, he has to, like, you know, he has his down-and-out moment, and then he has to rebound. I think that this is a a deeper look into the psyche of that kind of character, because I think it's very much the same character he's been playing, but it's sort of through a different angle or a different lens or a different filter or just a deeper look into it and just seeing the fragility of it and just the inability to do x y and z it's a huge gamble for him like he's cashing a big check here right because in in 96 both he gets his he gets his second oscar nomination for jerry Maguire, and mission impossible is this huge hit and one that he produced too so he's sort of you know, a big force behind the camera, so taking control in in a kind of different way, and then spends three years making this movie, not doing anything else but this movie, and at at the, sort of the height, well, what felt like at the time, the height of his sort of power to go off and do, and it's probably the only way this movie gets made, right? Is someone of Cruz's stature to to be able to bankroll <laughs> shooting for four hundred however many days in in London, but it d- it does feel like he's trying to stretch himself to prove something else, to work with a different director and I I like that he did that I think he's fine in the movie I don't think this is anywhere near his best performance I don't think he's a great fit for the role I think he's miscast in the movie I don't think anybody else could have gotten it made so I I guess I don't know what and and I'm so I'm applauding him for doing it I'm not saying he's doing a bad job but I think this is this is a Richard Gere part different someone who who can work in a slightly different register I think and yeah yeah, I don't know I, I I think he's miscast but I think he does a nice job here I would like to slide into the Baldwin Basinger universe where they made this movie, honestly. Have you seen The Getaway, the movie they made together where they have unsimulated sex? I feel sex? like I have. Maybe I haven't since I can't actually remember it. Is it really boring? <laughs> yes. Okay, well, maybe that's why. <laughs> Just watch the Steve McQueen one. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So apparently also in history, at different points in development, Stanley Kubrick wanted Woody Allen in the lead here. Which oh, boy. I hate that. It started as some kind of a comedy and became a drama, but Woody Allen at some point, Harrison Ford at one point, Alec Baldwin, Kim Basinger at one point, uh, Johnny Depp was considered at one point. This started as a comedy? It's, I, I mean, that's, that's what I mean. You say I, mean that, I, don't like... know, I don't know how you put Woody Allen in this not a comedy. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the tough thing, you know, Tobin, as you're saying that, I'm trying to think, like, on Letterboxd, you know, I know I've been ranking all of the the Cruise movies in order, and like it's a weird order. And I can't really like my friend was asking me, he's like, how like 
this morning, he's like, how is your Tom Hanks list in, or like, what order is that in? I'm like, I can't really explain it. It's like, how much I like the movie, how good I think he is in it, how much I'd want to watch it again. Uh-huh. And I was like, the, the clearest example that I can give of this is that when we did Cage Club, like, Fast Times, I love Fast Times. Like, Fast Times is incredible. I love it just almost across the board, unconditionally. But Nicolas Cage is in that movie for 15 seconds. Yeah, yeah. So on the list of his 90-whatever movies, it's like 50 or 60, because it's better than a lot of his terrible movies, but it's not a great Nicolas Cage movie. The lists have a weird alchemy that I can't exactly define. Like I'm just, I'm really struggling. This is the first time that I've struggled to figure out where to place a Tom Cruise movie, because like it's somewhere in my top five of his. Like When we did two episodes ago, or three episodes ago, Mission Impossible, like, Mike and I both came on, we were just like, I can't believe how good this is. Couldn't mm-hmm. believe it. Like, Couldn't believe it. It blew us away. It's just mm-hmm. like, I, I, this, this, is, this is him. Like, he found exactly what he needs to do. And I think that he is incredible in this movie. I think this is probably the best movie that we've done for this, like, in terms of how well it's made, the best cruise movie that we've seen so far. I just don't know, with my muddied alchemy of this list, where this belongs. It's so weird. Like, it's weird in those regards, and I don't know, like, I love it. But it's 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 a lot of weird different boxes. In what way is it, is it the best movie? I mean, I alone we have seen a few good men and the firm together, and I I would put both those movies <laughs> above this. Oh, movie. Well, I don't like the, I don't think the firm is very good. I think the firm is weird and goofy. And I'm I, on I, the firm weird. train. Tobin, one day I'd like your thoughts on Bonfire of the Vanities. This is not the firm. <laughs> but just put a pin in that, please. Okay. Oh God, I loved it. So, I mean, of the movies, and again, this is independent, none of this, I mean, I can't defend any of this other than just my <laughs> gut feeling, but of the movies, of the 20 movies that we have now watched for Cruise Club, I've given two of them five stars. I gave this movie and I gave A Few Good Men five stars. Yeah, okay. And I have yeah. them both in my top five. You know, I think that A Few Good Men is an immaculate movie. I think this is, I don't know, I just, there's something about this. The, the, the it's one of, of a it, kind, yeah. yeah the yeah. confidence of it, totally. the uniqueness of it, even though it's not exactly, but it is, like, there's just something about this movie. Like, I feel like A Few Good Men is one of the best versions of a movie that has been made a ton, and this is the best version of a movie that has uh-huh. been made once. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, good point, yep. I and I, I, can't, hmm. I can't defend it or articulate no, it better that. than that. Uh, that. That makes perfect sense, yeah, I see that. I, I want weird stuff. Uh, Kubrick, you know, everyone, you know, he's in a class of unto himself, you know, and these are reasons why, you know what I'm saying? Like, there, it's almost gets to a point sometimes with his films when you're talking about it, it's like uncomparable, to do, or at least mm-hmm. for me, like well, it just starts, you know, you just start talking about him and like maybe relating him back yeah. to like his other work and then, you know, or like we're getting off on like trivia tangents and stuff, but I love it and I love all of his movies and stuff, but. Mike, have you, have you said your favorite, because I haven't said mine, I don't think, no. I don't even know what mine is, I'm trying to think about it, but Mike, what's your favorite part of this movie? I do have a favorite part and it's partially, it's my favorite and maybe my least favorite part. I don't know. I, that happens every so, once in a while. So wait, wait. Do you want to hold on? Let me do mine, okay. and then we can use yours as the pivot point. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. That's fine. My favorite part. So when I first saw this movie, I saw basically I was like going through IMDb's top two fifty one summer. And I think I was even. I think it was like right after I took a class with Tobin. It was like between like my sophomore and junior year, and I was just like, "Here's all the movies that I saw," and you were like, "Wow!" Like you saw all these movies. I was like, "Yeah." And then like I in my head I was like, "I don't remember anything about any of them." Like I just you know <laughs> watch it's just the same thing now. Like I watched so much that I don't know. I can't retain anything. Thing. But like it was the same summer. Where, like in four days, I watched like Apocalypse Now and Platoon and Full Metal Jacket, and I'm like, I got Vietnam well, down, but now I don't remember. I, just, I don't. <laughs> it's just like I don't know what's going on. Back when I saw this, when I was probably 20 for the first time, which I feel like. I mean, I know that a lot of us probably saw it when we were 20 for the first time. I feel like I was just too young, and I remember just like the movie opens with Nicole Kidman stepping out of her dress. I'm like, ooh, nudity. Like I like this already. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying tonight is my favorite part is that the next scene that we see 
of them getting ready for the party is so beautifully made and the tracking shot of following him and then all of a sudden the camera stays on her and then it's her scene and then it follows back to him and then he turns off the music that does not feel like it belongs in the, like it's just the mm-hmm. music that they're listening to yeah, and it's yeah. so jarring and striking and like what I think this is is not and it's just unsettling and masterfully done and I was just like wow and I didn't even take notes on this movie I just watched this movie I'm like we're gonna I don't need to take notes it's gonna be in my brain I'm gonna just talk about it but then I was just like wow like this is this is incredible the fun thing fun thing I don't know the interesting thing about that which I think says something is you've got this long tracking shot and traditionally you have like those kind of things for fights or chases or something like that or you know you're you're good fellas and this is just them being extremely fucking married and domestic like she's like she's she's, like pissing in front of him while they go and they're talking about stuff that doesn't matter and their kids babysitter and stuff and it's just you know the most boring married couple shit and it's getting this beautiful striking shot Mm -hmm. and uh and blocking and it's just I, i think that is i think that's on purpose and i think that is a point that is being made. That's such a good point. It makes this the stakes of the like it is the, this, this these are the action sequences of this movie, right? Like <laughs> the Titanic stakes yes. of this movie is their marriage yeah. and their fidelity. Yes. Yeah, you're to, you're totally right. That makes and sense. The, and the music that makes it so like much more important maybe than it is or like it just gives it that air of like sophistication or grandiose whatever like it's very important what we're seeing right now which is <laughs> marriage you know mm-hmm. so mike hit us with it what is your okay. least favorite and your favorite part your your two your two for one so i mean it's hard to pick like a least favorite part of this movie so this is the so i'll say my favorite and then it's not necessarily my least it's just the part that i i never really i don't know that i understand it so the rainbow rental sequence yeah. love it like love that's like <laughs> I just think it's like incredible, like the the guy, the actor who runs the place, like renting of the tuxedo and all that kind of thing. And but I don't understand the Lily Zobieski part. Like, I mean, I get it, but I don't understand necessarily. Like, I know Kubrick is trying to say like there's all kinds of sex and all kinds of risky sex and all kinds of dangerous things. And like, I just think that 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 we didn't necessarily need to explore pedophilia uh, underage sex in this movie maybe he's trying to say you know Cruz has a young daughter in this film this might be a vision of that future or something but I don't I struggle every time with the end of this sequence like I just love everything else about it and even when they find them back there I'm like okay like let's just end it but then she goes on to be like this very sort of like nympho sort of character I struggle I struggle with that every time It's, it's not like it's not destroying the film or anything, but um, I just need help, like, understanding it. So, best to worst for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly a weird scene, and the fact that it comes back later, like, it's weird enough on its own, and then for it to return and everything's normal, it's like, oh, this is even weirder than I gave it credit for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe that's it. Maybe the the idea that there's, like, that second punch to it where it's like, oh, like, actually, we worked it all out. Like, we came to an arrangement, and everything's cool. And it says so much about consent, and I'm just not sure, like, I uh, I don't know that I'm smart enough or anything, but I just, I'm in the middle of another movie, I feel, you know? And then suddenly, like, I'm literally over the rainbow, and I don't know what's, like, happening, where am I? Like, all kinds of weird shit is going on too quickly, uh, and I'm about to go to an orgy. So, like, it's not really helping prep. It's okay, it just, I guess it felt gratuitous to me, and nothing really else does in this movie. If I had to guess there's a lot of rainbow imagery in this movie 
some some more obvious than others, uh, like like the fact that place is fucking called Rainbow. It's kind of going with the idea of this being the deconstruction of that that male sexual fantasy. Um, he's constantly chasing the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, and every time he gets there, it's just more and more fucked up. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, like his dream, the dream he's chasing turns out to be a nightmare, yep. essentially, right? Like what he thought he wanted is like, actually, mm-hmm. this is not what I want at yeah, all. Oh, that's shit. the bullshit I'm on. Because doesn't, in the very first scene, when he's with those two women, yes. he says, where, where are we going to go? And she says, where the rainbow ends. And right. it feels like that's kind of the best case scenario. Like, we, who knows what would have happened in that scene? Plus, it would have broken up the marriage, possibly. But, like, it feels like, compared to what he's about to see with Lily Sobieski and the, you know, the ritualistic sex orgy and everything like that, in theory, having, like, an innocuous threesome <laughs> feels like the best case scenario. And, like, you're right, Chris, like, everything... Every time he encounters the rainbow, it gets darker. Tobin, what about you? What is your least favorite part? I know you said that you like this the least this time of all the times you've seen it. What about this deed that does not work for you the most? I know you said you, Cruz is kind of miscast here. Is that your thing that you're going to hang your hat on? Or what's your least favorite part of this movie? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's hard to pick out a bad scene because it's made by Stanley Kubrick. And he makes really good fucking scenes. And I I do think I, I would have loved to see a different actor in this in this part. I, because I think it would have been more clear the the destruction of the male ego fantasy thing. What I think would have would have been just a touch more more well drawn. I think with with someone. But that aside, um, next to Mike's pick, which is an excellent pick for worst scene, the Lily Sobieski stuff I could do without. The other one is this is the intercut with Cruz his flirtation with the two women at the party is Nicole Kidman's flirtation with the Hungarian guy as they're dancing. I love Nicole Kidman in so much of this movie, but the two of them in that dance sequence together, the, her quote-unquote drunk acting is not, I'm not buying it. It throws me out of the movie every time I'm, when that scene comes on, it's always bugged me, that scene. It kind of came on in a hurry, didn't it? She throws back one glass of champagne and then feels like, and, and who knows what they've done to the champagne. One of the things I like about this movie is the way that it starts at this, you know, starts at Sidney Pollock's house or wherever, I assume that's his house, and he's throwing this lavish party and it's all, they're all rituals that we recognize. And then later in the movie, Tom Cruise goes to a big fancy house, and we don't know then that Sidney Pollock is there, but he is. And they're having another kind of ritual that we don't under that we don't have familiarity with, but they're both these sort of mating ritual places. We just are more familiar familiar with the rules in one, the rules in the other. So I like I like that this scene happens. I like that that this is taking place. I just think she's. I'm just not, I just don't do not buy her in the scene the way that I do later on in the movie where I am completely locked in with her. I think in that regard it's kind of a bummer because I think that scene starts out so well. Like I don't have the same faults that you have with it. I don't think, but I agree that it sort of it ends in a in a way that I wish sort of had smoothed to that point a little bit more. But that scene just starts so well. Yeah. Like I just true. think that them being like her being so flirty and so confident and like sort of giving a window but not quite and just it's so good and because it does feel a little truncated like we do get to see Cruz do more at the party right like I mean he's called upstairs to deal with something and he's talking to the women he meets Nick he has a conversation with him and Nicole came in just like talks to the one person granted they then they go dance but it would have you know been more interesting if she had more adventures at the party on her own right and you see like oh like, of course, this Hungarian guy who's, like, 20 years older than her desires her. But, like, I want to see where, like, the younger guy is also there. You know, where's the handsome model for her and all those kinds of things going on, too. And, like, you know, maybe she's called away because we find out what her profession was or what she used. You know what I'm saying? Like, they, mm-hmm. I just feel like it's a great 
place to develop character, like at a dinner party. Um, and they sort of slip on her there. Chris, what about you? What's your least favorite part of this movie? <sighs> it's really, it's, that's really tough. Um, like, while you were asking other people, I had to pull up, a, like, the Wikipedia just to, to find, you know, get something in my head that I, I disliked. Oh, my things are going to be such ticky-tack, petty little bullshit that you, whatever you say is going to be more meaningful than mine. I'll say I think the, um, <laughs> the morgue scene isn't very well shot, or it's not... I get why it's done to set up the was-it-her kind of mystery, but I just think it's kind of flat, and uninteresting and like him going in to like kiss her on the forehead then not doing it it's just a little too pathetic a little too soon and i I don't i don't Mm. love how that scene is done yeah i hear that for sure like i almost thought um while i do really like the back half of this movie i i was like really like they're gonna let him into the morgue (laughs) and like see it they're not even related but then you know i was like oh okay like this could be some of that dream logic at work or just you know you just got to take it for what it is at this point it's because like you know you give other movies that well, i mean he's flashing paranoia. his doctor's badge like it's a police officer's badge it's, right? he's just like let me in here right right right, right. yeah so it's almost like mind power right it's like professor x it's like this is whatever this piece of paper is whatever it needs to be or that's Doctor Who, right? I don't know. I'm getting it mixed up. But. I also think that like that kind of leads into the way that we were talking about before of a way you could read this that like he thinks that he belongs in all these places and he sort of talks his way into it, right? Mm, like it's yeah. that you know not the fragile male ego, but just like the entitlement where he's just like, oh no, I'm I'm allowed to go here. I'm a doctor. It's like, well, what does that mean? Like, I don't what? No, what? This movie is about power, especially among the the wealthy. This that ties into it. Him him getting his way into there like that. The fact that in that scene is the only black person in New York. He works in a basement. Things things like that. A, a lot of this movie, and I'm sure it'll come up as we get into the orgy scene, really is just about showing off your power. And I guess maybe there's a I didn't think about it. But there's probably a there's probably some sort of sexual link to that too. Freud because someone someone who loves Freud is slapping themselves on the head right now, yelling at the speakers. <laughs> <laughs> so my least favorite parts, and again, this is, I'm prefacing by saying these are the dumbest things in the world. I did not catch these, but apparently there are VHS copies of both Rain Man and Full Metal Jacket in this movie, which no does way. that mean that Tom Cruise is an actor in this world? Like, is well, this like an Ocean's 12 Julia this, Roberts test situation? This is kind of a Kubrick cameo kind of thing. Like in Clockwork Orange, the score to 2001 A Space Odyssey is predominantly in frame when he go, when Alex goes to the record store, as are, I feel like, several other of his movie uh, records. So, like, I think that's just him saying, like, his way of, like, putting Easter eggs in or something. Sure. And also, I think he's in here somewhere. I think he's in the jazz club when he meets up with yeah. uh, Nick Nightingale again. He's in a booth over there, so... I'm allowing him to do it, but I just think it's a weird thing. Again, ticky-tack. Another thing, very minor thing, and maybe it's just because they shot in England as opposed to New York where you actually need it. Considering how beautiful and how furnished and how spacious Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman's apartment is, they don't have central air. They have window air conditioning units. And it's like, what? <laughs> and it's a minor detail, but I'm like, why is that? Like, my eyes just went to that because I was not too long ago, about a year and a half ago, I was looking to buy a house and I that was one of my... Like, I don't want window air units. I want central air or something like central air. Oh, and so just, like, my eyes are sort of trained there and just saw them in multiple windows. I was like, that's weird, because they're very clearly very well off, right? I, yeah, I feel I feel like Kubrick would be proud that you found that. Like, <laughs> like Yeah, if, if there's a room 237 about this movie, like, mine's the air conditioning is the secret key to everything. Like, you know, keeping cool under pressure. I'm willing to jump into the 237 with you on this one, actually. Do they ever say what kind of doctor he is? Is he a plastic surgeon? He's not a hair doctor. 
<laughs> well, because he has he has like women patients, but then he has little kid patients, right? Okay. So what kind of general practitioner does that? He's not a pediatrician right. and a family medicine. Yeah. Family medicine could do yeah. that. Okay. I, mean, okay. I specifically remember the only thing about the doctor stuff I really remember is him like very professionally looking at women's breasts. Right. So that's maybe why I thought he was a plastic surgeon, but. Um, I, I want to kind of jump into that because in my kind of thesis about this being about power, we're seeing Tom Cruise flash this power throughout the yeah. movie, right? People see doctors as a uh, an important, a, a powerful position. Um, one of my favorite lines from Scrubs is Dr. Cox going, there's only four reasons to get into being a doctor, uh, women, sex, power, and sex. Y- you think that until you see how that compares to you know, your politicians, your billionaires, you know, your deep state people who are doing this Carcosa shit in these traveling mansions. <laughs> and he gets smacked down, like, because he does not, in relation, he is not all that powerful. He is nothing. Him being a doctor um, ties into a couple of, of points that are being made in this movie, and that is one of the major ones. So maybe maybe the, the air conditioner is showing that they aren't as well off as uh, they li- might like to imagine. Oh, but, I um, like that. Maybe I don't want to Super 237 this one yet. I don't know. He's kind of a big fish in a small pond, right? But then if you go into the bigger pond, he's a nothing, right? Because he yeah. is a doctor. He has power. He is, you know, when he goes to a party, like, he knows no one there. But he can tell these pretty young models, oh, I'm a doctor. And because he's handsome, they're like, oh, he's a catch. Yep. And mm. then you go to a place where people actually have money. They actually like, have fuck you money. It's just like, oh, you don't belong here. You're not one of us. Exactly. Like, sure, you have a beautiful apartment, but, like, you don't own... Based on the window, like, the, looking out at the end in that billiards room when they're at Sydney Pollock's place, I think that's just, like, an apartment building. Like, I think that's just, like, a two-story, massive, like, house-like apartment that he owns, which I can't imagine how much that would cost. Like, this is just a level of wealth that is incomprehensible. Right. Yeah, he's got way more... He's way more powerful. He's one of the... He's one of the masked guys. He's one of the people who gets to be there. He gets to be doing that, you know, uh, Bohemian Grove yeah, kind of Fidelio shit. Yeah, Rich. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yes, that's a great... Yeah, and he's only there, like, to watch, too, probably, right? He's just standing in the corner nodding approvingly, like, yes, yes, power, yes, mm, <laughs> yes, I feel it. There's theories that he's the Red Cloak guy, but it's it's really just kind of fan fiction and based on the I mean, fact it's got to be the guy who nods at Tom Cruise from the balcony, right? I, that could be it, too. Because, like, why mask? else would that guy... Why else would he nod? Like, why would a random person... I mean, it doesn't matter... But why would a random person not to him? Yeah, I don't know. yeah, because he is recognized, like not just by you know him, but by the woman too. The one, and she was like basically passed out after he helped her. He just gave her like you know she had just come to from ODing in Cindy Pollock's bathroom, and she recognized him at the party in in the mask. In the mask, so, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> so there must have been something like about the mask or his movements, or you know, there's telltale signs. I'm sure there's like. A whole list of bullshit they all had to remember before cleaning up. Now, I know that we talked about a lot of things. I know that we could talk about this movie for 400 days and talk about it for, you know, everything else. Is there anything else about this movie, any big scenes, any big moments that you want to make sure that we cover? Because we did our favorite and least favorite moments, but I don't want to, you know, not that we might never talk about this movie again unless we do Kubrick on Cinemakers at some point, but... Anything else about this movie? I'm going to start by just saying that, Mike, this is one of the very first, very few times that we've seen Cruz as the dad... And it's a little bit of a bummer that we don't really explore that dynamic at all, really, right? Like, he's Mm -hmm. just, he's a husband, and that's the key, his key role kind of in this is, like, whether or not he's a good husband. But the fact that he's a father really plays into none of this. And that's kind of a bummer, because, you know, especially after we saw 
the shockingly charming still Jonathan Lipnicki in J- Jerry Maguire and how well he interacts <laughs> with him there, I kind of wish we had a little bit more, but that's not this movie at all. I mean, I think like his daughter is like an issue, but it's not fr- it's not front and center whatsoever. And certainly with Jerry Maguire, like he just snapped right into like father role with that relationship. Like some might say, like jumped in there a little too soon, took a little bit of an advantage. <laughs> Go listen to that episode. It's a great one. It's a good movie. But yeah, I ag- I agree wholeheartedly. Like I-, I hope the next time that we see him as a family man, he's like a family man. You know, like has the time to play with the kids, roll around in the grass, do all that kind of cool crap. But Chris, is there anything else? Any other scenes? Any other big moments yeah. that we want to make sure that we discuss on this episode? I think we kind of have to talk about the elephant in the room here. I had a tougher, tougher. I don't know, a different experience watching this movie this time. Um, I made that joke at the beginning, but like I'm kind of serious about that because. Stanley Kubrick is sort of uh, involved, well, you know, allegedly involved with some conspiracy theories. And I think that he is kind of commenting on that in this movie. You know, we kind of know that the rich are, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theory guy. I don't think that Stanley Kubrick faked the moon landing. I don't think the earth is flat or anything like that. I think it's pretty clear that the rich are doing some fucked up shit. Like Bohemian Grove was real. It was caught on tape. Epstein's Island, um, you know, there's the, people know that like what was what, what was that Yale or, or Harvard rich assholes frat? It's just it's just a rich assholes frat, but they oh skull and crossbones, yeah, and it's just like yeah. it's like oh yeah, you you lay in a in a coffin and jerk off while you're talking about your father, and that's your initiation, and then you know it's 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 for all these rich people or fucking <laughs> David Cameron David Cameron fucking a pig like this this shit really does happen. Seeing it this way and seeing kind of that last scene where the guy's basically saying, like, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. And, like, he, he, he can't do shit about it. And that is something that is really frustrating in real life today. Because, like, there's just too much power in it for anyone to just look at the stuff that's going on and be like, yeah, sure as fuck, but, what, like, what can you do? And honestly, it, it hit really close to home this time. That reminds me of an earlier scene that I never really could kind of place other than just the general menace of it, but when there's the you know, the gang of six Yale bros walking down mm. the street, right? And, like, mm-hmm. they bump him into the car, and they're like, F this, and, like, all the, the other F that I'm not going to say. The droogs that show up? Yeah. yeah. And, like, is that is that sort of saying that, like, that's the future of Fidelio? Like, these kids who are, like, on top of the world, nothing can harm them, nothing can stop them, that yeah. Cruz is going to be beaten down mm-hmm. by them, too? I like it. Yeah, look at the news. Like, look how many asshole college guys get away with the fucking date rape shit, right? And, yeah. like, it's not commenting on what's happening you know it is happening yeah like I think and I agree like if you, you know, like I mean I did spend some time on YouTube once or twice going down the Kubrick conspiracy hole a lot of it is pretty valid like he did spend a lot of his career sort of trying to just expose not necessarily conspiracies or stuff but just the elite you know what I'm saying just like people should just not have that much power and people with that power should not be controlling everybody and all that and like many of his films uh, touch upon that kind of stuff and it's not always as central to the viewer as he's trying to to make it an eyes wide shut but it's you know what I'm saying like he really reveals it at the orgy and everything but it's still I think a lot of people misinterpret it or, or, or it goes over their head or they just sort of throw it by the wayside because it's like oh look at all the sex or look at all the, you know what I'm saying there's so much other sensational things happening sometimes they might miss the point god this is all making me like this movie more <laughs> something that I feel ties into him being a doctor as well is the, the way that he is kind of being led into the, the simplest most straightforward, most likely conclusion by, I can't remember mm-hmm. the character's name, Sid but Paul. yeah, yeah. Um, oh yeah, it's like Occam's Razor. <laughs> well, exactly. That is something you are very much taught in medical school. Uh, look for, look for, when you hear hoofprints, think horses, not zebras. I, I, I have this, this pain in my arm. It's, it's a little tingly. I get some, um, 
some like uh, spasms in it sometimes. It's most likely that I have some sort of muscle injury or strain. Uh, it's ex- You shouldn't jump to Lou Gehrig's disease over that, you know? And I think the idea that he's kind of been trained to accept the most likely scenario, and he has given it. And I actually genuinely believe Sidney Pock's character when he says that it was all kind of bullshit. I, th- I think that's a reason why he's chosen as doctor. He's, he's like going against his programming but because everything is just, he's out of his depth. He's so broken and beaten. And again, something I just saw going through it this time with very different eyes. And I wonder at the end there, like, it probably is the, the simplest explanation, but also he is so beaten down that, like, at that point, you could probably tell him anything, right? Yeah. And he would believe it because he just he's just at the end of his rope. Yeah. Yeah, it almost reminded me of sort of like when you deprogram someone from a cult. Like the brainwashing is... Is or you're programming snapped. someone as a cult. Like, it's either way, That's, right? Like, it's just it's indoctrinating he, them into, like... He's being rewired one way or the other, yeah. you know? <laughs> well, yeah. Like, Sidney Pollack has the money. He is the one literally writing the narrative. Like, whatever he says is what Tom Cruise is going to believe. And he knows everything that Tom Cruise has done in this movie, he knows about. Like, he's had a tail on him. He's got little birds ever. Like, he's basically Varys, right? Like, he's just, like, everywhere yeah. Tom Cruise goes, he has eyes. And no matter what he tells him in that moment, whether it's the truth or not, that's what Tom Cruise is going to believe. And I think him just saying, it's this, like, it's her, you know, we didn't have her killed. Why would we have her killed? She's a junkie. You said it yourself. Like, it's almost the narrative that Tom Cruise offers to them, right? Like, she's going to have to go to rehab. Oh, perfect. She's going to be our fall guy later if we need one. It's just, yeah. it's, again, the winners write the mm-hmm. history books. The rich write the narrative. Fidelia. Mm-hmm. As a question, um, and I guess maybe this is dipping too dangerously close into, like, you know, your headcanon fanfic bullshit. Are we supposed to believe, I guess it's, again, up to what you think and how Tom Cruise perceives it, that she found the mask and put it on the bed? Or that, like, you know, they sent some super assassin ninjas to scare him again? I know, but I do want to say that that is the mm. cover photo on Letterboxd for this movie. It's her sleeping next to the mask. And it's like, why is that allowed to <laughs> yeah, be Jesus. the photo? Like, that is such a spoiler. I actually, so this time around, because that always kind of stuck in my craw, but this time around I had... a like a thought about that and I have no I have nothing to really back this up except for just I'm just gonna say it like I think he put it there I just don't think he remembers putting it there I think he was in such a state that like maybe he wanted to get caught or it was a fugue kind of thing but like part of me is like I think he did that and didn't know he did it because he was trying to face something and like wasn't ready yet Mm. I don't know I wanted to read something into that as and and have it not just sit there this time. So I don't know if that interpretation is like. Any yeah, I don't good. have an answer. I like that. I don't. I don't know shit. But I think it just yeah it ties into the fact that it doesn't like he's just so beaten down and he he's reading these conspiracy theories into everything and, and and yeah it's probably the most simple answer. It's probably that she just like found it was gonna be like oh what's this and then fell asleep. But yeah, it's you're kind of so with him at that point that you you're looking over your shoulder. You can't can't tell what's real from fantasy. Tobin, is there anything else about this movie that you want to make sure that we cover that we have not talked about that you're you're dying to get off your chest? Only one thing that I remember, there was a lot of criticism of the movie at the time, or not maybe a lot. There was criticism of the time that it clearly is not New York, that it's they've clearly constructed all these, you know, like a block and a half in, um, in, in London Pinewood to make the movie. At the time, just after this movie came out, I moved to New York and I was like fully on that bandwagon. Like, this is not New York. And I think it's actually a real strength of the movie that it's because it's not New York. This is like this, as we've been saying, this kind of dream alternative. Stanley Kubrick version of, of of New York. And I think that, that it actually fits nicely into the texture and atmosphere of the movie that it's not the New York 
of real New York, that it's a deliberate kind of stylization uh, of New York. And I think that that, uh, yeah, so that was a, that was a criticism that I uh, no longer had watching this time. Some of the that time criticism of this movie, I, I found a couple of reviews and I was reading through some of them. Man, there were some uh, critics, you know, there's just some real shit takes at the time. Like some of the people <laughs> were, were honestly like dinging the movie because Stanley Cooper can't tell a movie about intimacy. He's too cold and distant and robotic. It's like, yeah, no shit. It was like, was your next article going to be about how Fight Club is like grossly hyper-masculine? Like, you fucking idiot. That's the point. <laughs> I know, I was going to say, it sounds like he's the perfect person to yeah, explain like... <laughs> what a relationship really is to me. Cold, distant, shut off, you know, <laughs> separated. <laughs> Mike, any other thoughts about Eyes Wide Shut before we maybe play a couple games and I have a, a little bit more trivia? Mm. Uh, yeah, you know, like, even though, much like Tobin, like, this is sort of, I won't say this is the my least enjoyable screening or anything like that but this is just like the one time like I just had I don't know it was just more difficult for me to watch this time and I'm not saying that's like a bad thing or anything I was just like this movie I didn't expect it to like re-challenge me in any sort of way like I thought I knew what I was in for but it just you know it's a fucking Kubrick film so like every time I feel like every time I rewatch one like something pops up I remember last time I saw Clockwork Orange I went up and watched it at the draft house with Kyle and Brian. And I mean, I could not stop laughing from beginning to end with the person next to me. Like it was like, I swear it was a comedy, you know? So like every time I watch this, like I gained something different and I'll watch it again and, uh, and I'll recommend it. And uh, yeah, I'm really psyched that we got to talk about it. Yeah, me too. I'm glad that you were both here for this. I'm like, I don't think this is necessarily a pivot point in cruise club. Cause I know there's a lot more great movies to come. But I feel like between this and Magnolia next episode, we are at the, like, you know, if this is a mountain, we're at, like, the peak of the mountain, right? In terms of the mm-hmm. movies themselves, like, this is, who boy. And not that we're really going to descend rapidly until we get to the mummy, but, you know, uh, <laughs> we're, we're reveling in this. Like, this is kind of the cage action week, right? Like, this is the, oh, yeah. the rock, Con Air face-off. Like, I can't believe these movies are back-to-back. It's like, what is happening? But also, <laughs> it feels like that for the whole run. Like, it feels like, how are all these movies... Like, how is Top Gun, like, his fifth movie? Like, what what is happening? Yeah, that was pretty jarring to get used to in the beginning, was I didn't realize, like, how good it started and maintained and is going to be for the rest of it. <laughs> so a few little bits of quick, quick trivia. Cruz and Kidman both signed open-ended contracts to work on this movie. They agreed that no matter how long it took to finish the movie, they would stay on board. Um, and Vincent D'Onofrio, who was in Full Metal Jacket, said apparently he had heard this reported and said as open advice quote, rent a house or apartment because you're going to be in England for a while, which, yeah, 400 days is quite a while. And he was only in half of Full Metal Jackets. Speaking of how long it took in sort of conflicts, the original part of Victor Ziegler and Marion Nathanson, which was Sidney Pollack and the girl who dies. Oh, huh. Marion is the daughter of the patient. So this is two wildly different things. They're similarly linked together thematically or reason why this is trivia together, but they're separated from the thing. So the original part, the Sidney Pollack part, was originally going to be Harvey Keitel. He was Cassie shot a bunch. And the Marion part, the daughter of the patient who died, was Jennifer Jason Lee. And both of them had to back out when they had to do reshoots, like, I guess, presumably months and months or maybe a year later. And like, oh, we're doing other movies now. So they had to recast those. So, you know, we were talking earlier about how Sidney Pollack was recast and, you know, that whole thing at the end. It's so much work there. Like, I can't imagine doing that much work on a movie like this and just being like, oh, like, I didn't expect a year later for you to still be making this. Like, <laughs> it's not like Marvel now where they, like, they write in reshoots into your contract. Like, you have to come back. Man, wow. It would wow, be wow, wow. incredible 
to see that footage these days. You know, that's that's like the Eric Stoltz Back to the Future footage yeah, that yeah. everyone's trying to get their hands on. My last little thing is that this movie got no Oscar nominations and only one Golden Globe nomination for Best Original Score, and it did not even win that. So for a movie that we all... You know, admire even if we don't all love it. It's sort of like a kind of a slap in the face. It did. It was successful at the box office. It cost sixty-five million to make, and it made one sixty-two. So this was, I think, Kubrick's first and only number one opening week box office movie. It's so this, it was a financial much. success, if it just wasn't necessarily a, an awards success. And not uncommon for Kubrick movies to grow in critical esteem after, like, as time goes on, right? Like. I think this movie is a lot more well-regarded today critically than it was certainly when it came out. It's the kind of movie that definitely ages well over time, right? So I don't know if I'm going to be able to play this game. I don't know if any of us are going to be able to play this game. Imagine for a second that Tom Hanks was cast (laughs) in the role of Dr. Bill. Is Rita Wilson? Oh, I love it. it Imagine it's Tom Hanks (laughs) and Rita Wilson. What would this look like? Could it work? Uh, no, please, no. I don't think so. I don't know. I, mm, I don't know. I don't think I want to see I'm that. really trying to wrap my brain around this. No, no, that's it. No, I'm, just trying, I'm trying so hard, and I, got, I, I don't know. It's kind of breaking my brain. I could imagine the Tom Hanks, Rita Wilson, Nora Ephron-directed version of this movie that's like in the Joe versus the volcano mold of like, and, and being allowed to kind of make this make the movie whatever it's going to be and not not sort of stick too close to the thing. And it would be, I think a much more maybe even handed look at marriage from two different points of view, instead of just <laughs> solely from this male privilege point of view. And I, however, it, however much it is critiquing it. And I think, I think I would be actually kind of interested in that. Yeah. It would be much more of a movie about, like, I feel like the domestic couple stuff would be leveled up a little bit and pushed to the forefront and like, Look at these two sexy actors would probably be a little pushed back a little bit. But um, I, I think he could do it. He's Tom Hanks. I'm sure he could. You know, should he? Maybe not. <laughs> hey, man, I, I, I would love to slip into the world where a bunch of celebrity couples. Give me give me Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn. Give me a fucking Ted Danson and Mary Steenburgen. Just give, give me a world where every celebrity couple has done this movie and I'm in. I'd like to see the Nick Offerman. Oh, my God. Uh, Megan Mullally version of this. Oh, I could see I could love I would love to see Nick Offerman show up. at the orgy. <laughs> he would call bullshit on all this so fast. He would. He goes, what's with these shenanigans? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right now I'm looking. So I, I'm on slice.ca. So I guess a Canadian website. Here are famous celebrity couples from 1979 to 2019, the last 40 years. Uh, I'm just going to go through. I'm going to go through. There's 41 of them. We're not going to do all those. <laughs> okay, they're not all actors because the third one is Prince Charles and Lady Diana. So maybe this won't exactly work. Can we imagine a movie? And this is something that, you know, Chris, you had mentioned earlier. Can we imagine this movie with Danny DeVito and Rhea Perlman? Yes, <laughs> yes. Give me. Give me that movie. <laughs> What about uh, Goldie and Kurt Russell? Yeah, I said that. That would be that'd be a great one, I think. Yeah, that would be good. I agree. Yeah. Lenny Kravitz and Lisa Bonet? Holy shit. <laughs> Brad Pitt and either Jennifer Aniston or Angelina Jolie? Possibly? Um, Although I feel like they did that with her movie By yeah, the Sea, right. which was whew, not great. And then they got divorced, or not divorced, but they, they split up like within six months, I think so. Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I'm sorry, I hijacked this. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've hijacked this so bad and taken it to a very dumb place. I'm sorry. I like the Kermit. I'd, do, I'd watch that one, yeah. What about Muppets, Jennifer Lopez Muppets and Ben Affleck? Fidelio. Ooh. Oh, God. Hey, uh, what about, I'd rather watch Gardner and Affleck 
marriage dissolved. Like, there's got to be security <laughs> camera footage of that somewhere. I do want to say, I don't know if we've said it on the podcast yet, but Hustlers is pretty great, and Jennifer Lopez is incredible in that. So if you did not see her in Out of Sight, go see Out of Sight. What are you doing, number one? But also, number two, sort of another incredible performance to put up there on the shelf of Jennifer Lopez, our best living actress, question mark? Not true, but maybe, you know, not not wildly incorrect. Other question, other game we're going to play. If you win a walk-on role into this movie, how are you going to Stanley yourself? What is your Stanley cameo, your Stamio? Where do you mm. put yourself in this movie? Is it the orgy or is it somewhere else? Yes, definitely in the orgy. But here's the thing. Um, <laughs> I would be, and I'm just, just to be per- brutally honest, I'm the blindfolded piano player who gets <laughs> either killed or sh- set back off to Seattle. If I'm being honest, that's that's who I ended up being in this movie. I like that. I was just going to I was going to be the cab driver <laughs> that drives him to the place and just, you know, I've always wondered what happened to him and I guess he just, you know, they literally were like, "Sir, what are you doing here?" and he was probably like, "Well, I just dropped off this guy, you know, he told me to wait." And they're like, "All right, we'll go get him for you. Just a moment, please." And he, they probably slipped him like a couple hundred bucks to keep his mouth shut. Just be like, "Just drop this guy back off where you found him." No problem. Man, I'm trying. I'm trying to think of something, but the masks are so fun. It's like being in the worst panic at the disco music video. I uh <laughs> I think I think I would you know, I would want to participate, but I'd certainly want to see some of the uh some of that horrible shit in real life. So I guess put me put me in as a, a I, I'm not very I'm not I don't have much of a face for film anyway. So put me behind a mask. Put me in coach, I'm ready to play. <laughs> so you're just like one of the corner nodders? Yeah, definitely someone that's <laughs> mm-hmm. just like uh mm, but mm, yes, okay. Mm, this is this is what I'm doing now. Mm, this is maybe power. maybe mm. maybe you're one of the CGI figures added. To, oh yeah, to <laughs> s- save American audiences from from genitalia. Yeah, I, I, you know, I heard they were digitally removed for the discs. Mine looks no. no. My I the one I watched had some real thrusting. Oh, okay. Like, so, there was nothing blocking them. The one I watched, they shot it the normal way, and then before he died, Kubrick said. I know that this is probably going to be like too much for the censors. So like, I basically give you permission or like, let's figure out a way to digitally add people. So like, even though that feels like a wild step, like I think he had sort of consented to that. Like it's okay to add these in. Cause like, I know that this is not necessarily an R rated movie. Well, that's, um, what he, that's what he said. Yeah. I, I don't know. The version, the version I saw had, had once again, figures standing in, which I, fine, whatever. But like it's, <laughs> Stanley Kubrick's framing is so, Important, and I just yeah, it did, but it, it that does bug me that they that they did. I that. got it. I want to be blocking out one of the sex scenes. I want to be a masked guy who is standing there wondering, wondering exactly how you sixty nine when both people are wearing masks. <laughs> oh, yes, I was yep. trying to figure out if those yeah, masks were on their faces or not. Like it feels like there's one that looks like it's like on top of the head, but still that that defeats the whole point <laughs> of the party. It's a weird thing, yeah. man. I don't know where I would be in this movie because I feel like the orgy has been covered in these ga- in these guesses. I feel like I've done this three or four times, Mike, in the TomTom Tom Club. I'm going to be the guy that you don't necessarily see, but the guy at the newsstand. Like, I just want to be at that newsstand where he buys the paper where he finds out that, <laughs> that Mandy died. Like, I just, there's all these movies, like, in The Firm, too, I think. Like, there's all these mm-hmm. movies where there's just, like, a newsstand that Cruz visits. Like, just put me there. Why not? You know, that'll give me a, a use for this journalism degree, just selling newspapers. The closest thing that I've got to it, so. Two questions. Does Tom Cruise run in this movie? I think we said no, right? He walks towards the camera at some point, but uh, I don't think he yeah, runs. Yeah, very purposefully. Yeah. And sl- slaps his hands mm. together, but yeah, no running. You both know, or at least I know Tobin knows, because he's been on Cruise Club before. Chris, I don't know if you know, but there's somebody on Twitter, Harperfect or Harperfect, who said that you can replace Tom Cruise's character's name in any movie with the name Lightning McQueen, and not a single thing would change. <laughs> if he was Dr. Lightning McQueen, would it work? I'm going to say 
he's already so far out of his element that like it's not going to make things worse. I say it works. No, I, I hate everything about that, and that's that's a bad that's a bad attempt at a meme. I don't like it. I mean, I'm on board every almost every week, so yeah. I, I, <laughs> so you're the deciding factor. You know, we got Chris saying no. Me and Mike don't really count because we try to say yes every time. It's up to you, Tobin. Yes or no? No, I'm with Chris on this. I think uh, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> all right, the last thing we have to do is nominate us for some awards. We still don't know. Maybe the Fidelios? Oh. Ooh, that's good. Um, or the Golden Masks. That's what it's got to be. It's a good one. The Cruise Club, the Tom Cruise Awards, the best and worst of what his filmography has to offer. Best film, yes, Eyes Wide Shut. I would argue, yes. Best director filmmaker, I will say. <laughs> this still might go away, but Stanley Kubrick, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do we want to nominate this for best or worst cruise role? Well, I don't know that it's... it's I like the performance, but right. I have issues with the role from time to time. What are the parameters on that? Is is that like the in the, the plot, like the, his character, or is it acting? Well, it's sort of like, you know, like sort of best actor. Like, imagine this is the equivalent of best actor, the Oscars. And considering what he's done in other movies and sort of the work that he's put into, does this qualify for one of his best performances? I think just, be, best just role, because of those two best. scenes at the end where he breaks down, and it's, it's so not something... You see from him, and it's kind of something that works so well because you're surprised at how well he does it. So, I, I mean, hey, I, I'd say yeah. Tobin? No. Ooh. Damn. Okay. We'll, we'll keep it off. Most badass oh, role on the same? No. Most wasted performance? No. Best fight? He doesn't get into a fight. No. Like, he, he kind of, you know, not literally runs from fights, but he tries to avoid confrontation. Like, or just, or he just, he's able to avoid confrontation. I don't know if he's trying to, but he's able to avoid confrontation. Yeah, I wouldn't put that in there. Best theme song slash soundtrack slash score. I mean, I know it's nominated for Golden Globe, but I feel like... I did a bad, bad thing. I kind of forgot about that, actually. How the song that the piano player plays, like, diegetically at the the orgy becomes the non-diegetic soundtrack throughout the rest of the movie. I thought that was fucking great. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, in the same way, like, when the music starts in the beginning and you're like, oh, this is going to be scored with, like, classical music and Tom Cruise just turns it off. Right. It's, like, in that case, it starts non-diegetic and then you realize it's been diegetic to the scene the whole time. Yeah. And apparently that um, that's music, the music with the ding, ding, is like, that wasn't composed for the movie. That's a, just a, that's yeah. a piece of pre-existing music, which is wild. And one other thing, apparently, to get her feeling more comfortable Stanley Kubrick let Nicole Kibben like choose what music to listen to like when especially in the nude scenes because those are apparently very difficult for both of them to shoot that was just what she used to get into the mood and he liked it so much that he put it in the movie um, so that Chris Isaac was not I guess in the script that it was just a Nicole Kibben choice so you know I'm gonna say yes I think it's an yeah. interesting meld of the creepy music and also the the diegetic music and all of that so I'm gonna say yes totally. best dance scene if if, it, if does, does Tom Cruise dance? <laughs> I don't think he's not. the one dancing. no she dances all right. Best cruise outfit wardrobe. Ooh, the mask is Fidelio good. Costume. Yeah. Best sunglasses. No. Best death. He does not die. Best line or best freakout. Uh, is there something he does? Either of these things. There's. I mean, I think that Nicole Kidman has these in speeds. Like the one time, I wrote down one quote from this movie. Those two girls at the party last night. Did you, by any chance, happen to, fuck them? <laughs> but she says it with such like so much more space between the words like it's just that whole thing is incredible I don't know if there's anything that Tom Cruise does that is worthy in terms of his career that is like does he have any memorable lines in this or any specific like because his freak out is just like exhaustion yeah it's more of a breakdown yeah. I wouldn't call it a on the Cage Club right. Network, I feel like uh, freakout has a much different connotation. I mean, Cruz has a, a good number of freakouts. Like, he's got a, a fair number under his belt already. Yeah, I don't know if this movie necessarily qualifies. Best sex scene for Cruz. 
Oof, it is like a, no. I, the point is that it's an extremely unsexy sex scene, so no, it did, it, I mean, it, it did, got the point across, but no. Most athletic feat? I don't think he does anything in this movie that's particularly athletic, unless I'm forgetting something. No? No. Nope. Best running scene does not run. Best or worst love story? Again, it's about mm. a marriage, but it's not a love story. I, mean, I could certainly see it in there for last, or uh, for worst, I'm sorry. All right, so I'll just say, Bill, what's her name, Alice? It is Alice, yes. Bill and Alice and Eyes Wide Shut. Best ensemble cast? No. And then best non-cruise actor, male or female, Nicole Kidman, we already have in there. Anybody else in this movie worth nominating in this category? Mm, Not for me. I don't think so. I love Sidney Pollack, but, you know, it could have been Harvey Keitel. It wouldn't have changed anything. And Alan Cumming has a great little scene in it, but there's not oh, enough, yes, enough of yeah. him. to. And he's so eye-fucking Tom Cruise. It's great. Not, they don't. None of them have enough heft, I think, to or enough screen time to stand out. He, then neither of them are any Jonathan Lipnicki. So, I mean, if, if you can't compete with the kid from Jerry Maguire, why even bother <laughs> running? Six nominations. Best film, best filmmaker, best theme, uh, theme song, soundtrack score, outfit, wardrobe, worst love story, and Nicole Kidman as best non-cruise actor female, completing her trilogy of Days of Thunder, Far and Away, and Eyes Wide Shut. Well, thank you both for joining us tonight on this supersized episode of Cruise Club. One of you, I will not say who, will be back in two weeks for Magnolia. Chris, if you have an elevator pitch, what's your 30-second spiel on what Now and Again, your podcast, comes out twice a month with Nico. What is your pitch? What is Now and Again? Uh, it's basically the orgy scene in a podcast form. So Cool. <laughs> so come in. We won't make you take your mask off. Uh, it's about pop music. Uh, we're going through the Now That's What I Call Musics chronologically, uh, but that's miserable a lot of the time, so we take a lot of fun detours through weird and uh, nostalgic and uh, even some modern pop music. So if you're into that, come on over. It's fun. Awesome. And actually, this might be your, your ser- as of right now, your series wrap on Tom Tom Club, unless you add to a movie later. I think this might be the last that you chose, so... This might be the, the, the could this be the farewell? I guess that's also a spoiler for who's coming back from Magnolia. But uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think I don't know if you're coming back. But Chris, thank you for joining us on both mazes and monsters in this episode. You've been a you've been a delight. You're very welcome. Before I go forever, there's one very important thing we need to do though. What's that? Fuck. That means to be the end of the episode, but can't be the end of the episode. But uh, Tobin, what about you? If if you have to explain your elevator pitch of what the Contenders is, the podcast you do with your sister Aislinn, who's been on these podcasts before, who's on our ragtag bunch of misfits, the Outsiders, at least, what is the Contenders? The Contenders is a podcast about movies directed by and/or starring fearless women. So uh, yeah, that's that's it. Come check it out. So this episode comes out next Friday. The mm-hmm. 27th which means that you just put out an episode of the contenders your first after a, a little hiatus what yep. movie you announced it forever ago but what movie is it that you're doing is it, oh pitch perfect 2 is that right pitch pitch perfect 2 baby yeah wonderful so go check yeah. out the contenders for our pitch perfect 2 uh where tobin island return to form after a nice little summer vacation that's right. I hope you return to form. I hope it's not like we're not overselling an episode that may or not be recorded yet. But uh, it has been recorded, and I have to say it is excellent. If I do say so, wonderful. Myself. Mostly because of Island. Well, of course. I mean, Island's the best. And then Mike, you have third times a charm. The new episode comes out. You got a double dip in October for your Halloween horror spooky month. And then we've got uh, Too Fast, Too Forever, and Boyfriend material. Go check those out on a weekly basis, too. But for all things Cruise Club and Hanks for the Memories and Tom Tom Club, you can go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Email us, run at cageclub.me. Come back next week on the Hanks for the Memories feed for Radio Flyer, and come back in two weeks for Magnolia, plus the Amy Man music video, Save Me, which is the re- We know that that's why. <laughs> You want to come back for that, for that one sweet Amy Man video. 
I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was Chris Mattiello of Now and Again and Tobin Addington at the Contenders. And we'll see you next time for Magnolia right here on Cruise Club.